Welcome to Brooklyn's Members TV and Podcasts. I'm Steve Clark and I'm delighted to be joined by none other than Richard Noble, OBE, only one of three people alive in the world today to break the land speed record. Welcome, Richard. Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Um, we're here to chat about your latest best-selling book, simply titled Take Risk. But before we do that, I know you're a very active man and not known to stand still for so long. So what's lockdown been like for you? It's, it's been an extraordinary experience. I mean, um, first of all, there's a real personal fear about what's going on uh, because basically I'm over 70 and therefore vulnerable. Secondly, I've been extremely angry about the constant failure of the government to communicate properly and also to uh, handle the PPE issues for the unfortunate people working in the NHS, which I think is unforgivable. And um, it's all, and, and in the meantime, of course, I've got a number of startups getting going, which is really good and really exciting. But it's all part of this British thing. We really have to shape up as a country. We really have. We can do a lot better than we are actually doing. Mm -hmm. I think we could probably talk about this all afternoon, Richard. To be quite honest. <laughs> and we wouldn't get round to the wheels. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Richard, you were booked to be our guest on July 9th to talk about the book and your life. I really hope we can rearrange for later this year. We have some news that the museum is going to partially open sometime in August. So but oh, that God. really doesn't allow um, any, any uh, gatherings for talks or lectures. But... We'll just have to bide our time as soon as we can get something in the diary. I'm sure you'll be happy and safe to come and join us. Steve, I'd absolutely love to come. The, um, uh, you know, throughout all these various projects, they've been, uh, we, uh, Brooklyn's has given us an opportunity to present them and to get to know the team members and everybody involved. And it's, it's been a huge privilege. Thank you. So you were the fastest man in the world in Thrust 2 for 14 years from 1983 couple of things how did you get into land speed record breaking and was it something you always dreamed about doing yeah it absolutely was um my father was um was in the army and we were based in inverness um in scotland <clears throat> and um one day he took us for a drive around the north side of loch ness and there was john cobb going for the world water speed record i never saw the boat go but i saw the, the crusader boat sitting there on the jetty uh, incredibly futuristic design, which even today would be seen as futuristic. And I was just amazed by the whole concept. Uh, here was a 52-year-old guy mm -hmm. setting out to achieve the fastest ever speed on water with a very, very high technology craft. And uh, something happened. I can't explain what happened, but um, I just suddenly got hooked on this. And um, throughout my life, I've always been going back to it. It's, uh, it seems that it's very important to me. Mm. Um, I know you're a very patriotic person, Richard. Um, do you think there's a link between that and setting the world speed record? I'm absolutely sure there is. I mean, I really am. You see, we, we, we live in a very odd country right now. Um, Britain doesn't really have any kind of identity. I mean, uh, a lot of our difficulties are about the fact that the country doesn't, we don't know what the hell the country really stands for. Um, we are, of course, coming out of uh, the EU, and so consequently, companies, countries, got to have some sort of identity. And things like uh, achievements, like breaking world records, are very important in creating that identity. 
The other thing too about it is that um, uh, the world land speed record attracts the most enormous audiences. And to give an idea with Bloodhound, we did about 1.5 billion pounds worth of media exposure in over 200 countries. I mean, it is enormous. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the other thing about Bloodhound was that we pioneered the use of linking the project uh, with the education. Uh, and to put it in perspective, Britain, Britain's education is not, record is not particularly good. If you look at a thing called PISA, the Program for International Student Assessment, uh, we've been dropping down the rankings there, uh, there for years. And um, the effect it has on the kids is extraordinary. They get so worked up and so excited about it because, of course, we're doing it for real. Yeah. And I think there's something to do with screens here. Most of the kids today, of course, live in front of their screens. And as you know, Steve, everything on screen can be, um, can be uh, photoshopped, can be modified, yeah. can yeah. be fraudulent. But the thing about a land speed record is that is not fraudulent. That is for real. That's real life and death stuff. Indeed. Um, I have to say, Richard, at this point, that I found your book fascinating. Um, oh, and I'll come you. on to why in a moment. But you publicly state right at the front of the book that it is an unusual publication. Yep. Why did you think that in the first place? Or did you mean for it to be unusual? Oh, I absolutely meant it to be unusual. And it was absolutely intentional. Of course, you know, when you're um, doing, uh, when you've got a sort of uh, a series of programs uh, developing land speed record projects, you've got to buy and read every single book you can get your hands on. Because in each book, there's a little, you know, there's a little snippet of value there somewhere that you can employ in the major projects and, and help it through to success. And so um, I'd like to think that I've got them all. And they're all the same sort of thing. It's the story of the hero, um, basically how he, how he or she drove the vehicle and, uh, and how they got the record. And uh, I found that intensely boring because there's another side to all this. And the other side is the enormous fight that's needed to drive a project like this through. And you've got to start with, um, well, we start with virtually nothing. And you've got to fight it through and you must not ever give up. You've just got to keep going, keep the pressure up, fight all the battles, keep the humor going and somehow work your way through to success. The, idea, so the idea of the book is simply that um, it's uh, a way of thanking all those amazing people who stepped out of line, who took personal risk um, by investing their company's budgets into our projects and helping us get this thing through. It's a way of saying thank you. The other thing is that um, we have a terrible problem in Britain is that we are totally and absolutely risk averse. Um, we are obviously headed for some sort of recession now and uh, the whole country has got to change and it's got to start making money, seriously making money. And to do that, uh, you have to take risk. You have to be number one. You can't be a country that follows. The Americans define Britain as the country that follows. Nothing new comes out of Britain, they say. Well, it's time for change. I guess that's um, an epidemic that's been uh, rattling through Great Britain for a good many years, Richard. And uh, it's not only in industry, it's other parts of the society that risk has just been taken away. Absolutely. And of course, then uh, the fundamental problem is that you if, if you're not going to take the risk, you're not going to generate anything new. So, for instance, we're, uh, the classic example of this is a land speed record project where you have to take considerable risk. You have to innovate. You have to try all sorts of new technologies and take risk on them. 
because otherwise you'll just end up producing a vanilla vehicle and it won't get a record. It's really as simple as that. It may look, it may look nice, but it's not going to do the job. That's correct, Steve. Absolutely. Richard, one standout thing for me in the book is your inbuilt ability to bounce back after so many failures. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but you did experience a lot of failures, whether it be on land air, or on the water. How have you managed to keep coming back? Well, there is a wonderful thing out there, which is that basically, um, as long as the sponsorship um, arrangements work, you can do these projects. That's the first thing. Uh, you can't go to the city and raise money for a land speed record project because basically they're totally and absolutely risk averse and uh, nothing good will come of that. So therefore, the only way in which you can make these projects work is via sponsorship, where you produce hum humongous levels of publicity for your sponsors. They get very pleased with that and they pay the bills and we spend the money on the car or the airplane or the boat or whatever we're actually doing. That's the, that's the, the simple um, system that works so well and gives us great advantage. Um, um, and of course, you know, you are innovating and some of these things will work and some are, the, and some, with some, the timing is wrong. So for instance, in the book, we do refer to the Farnborough Aircraft Company, which is the little high performance air taxi, which yeah. I think has got a, an absolutely fantastic future. And now what's happening as a result of the publishing of the book, I've got people coming forward saying, hey, the time is right to do this now. The airlines are in a hell of a mess. Uh, you've got the answer to that. You've done all the work. How do we get started? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. So the problem with particularly the industrial type of projects that we've been doing as well is it's very, very difficult to get this thing right, get the timing right, uh, because the projects do take a long time to do, to do. It takes a long time to build them, design, build, test, certificate an airplane. Um, and, um, you know, and you hope that by the time you come out the other end, there'll be a nice strong demand for the product. Um, and in our case, uh, I think probably we were too optimistic. But the interesting thing is, here we are, that was 2006, 2007, and people are now starting to recognise it. Um, big aircraft aren't the future. No, they're not. What we want is point-to-point -point travel. Uh, very fast and uh, bespoke and also um, at a sensible price. And the great thing about the, the Farnborough F1 airplane was that uh, traveling almost as fast as a Spitfire, you could go for a thousand miles and the cost per mile is the same, is around what well, it was certainly at the, when we were doing it, about the same cost per mile as a Range Rover. Mm. So it really can change things. And the pilots at uh, British Airways, we've, we've made a big mistake. We started in our careers flying little airplanes because that's how we got uh, our, got through our, our, uh, our flying licenses, etc. And now we're in the big airplanes. We, we don't fly the big airplanes anymore. Mm. It's only occasionally that we actually are allowed to land them. And we would love to get back to flying a little airplane. We really would love to do that. And if we can do that, that would be um, absolutely amazing. Yeah. Uh, and I the other thing I think you've made yeah. uh, pretty plain to see is that we now recognize that uh, major airport hubs are in the wrong place. Yes, absolutely. And, um, and the stupid thing about it is that there are um, some uh, oh, 10,000 small airfields in, the, in America, there's 2,000 or two to 3,000 in Europe, and you're never more than about uh, 20 minutes drive away from any of those. Mm -hmm. um, let's get back to the record breaking. Um, I know you believe it's a great team thing, 
Um, give us a flavour of what it's like to set up a successful land speed record team. Well, the first thing is, the first stage you've got to go through is to, to define what you're actually setting out to achieve. And, um, and then, of course, you've got to find out what the current record is and what the competition's doing and get some sort of feel for it. Uh, then you've got to amass effectively the new technology and the new concepts, which will enable you to get a considerable advantage over what has gone. And then gradually, you've got to build your team as people join it um, to kind of join in. Uh, obviously, of course, the money is crucially important because people have got to be paid and you've got to be sure, sure that um, uh, you can keep it supported. And some of these projects are very long. Bloodhound, of course, is, uh, was very, very tough for 11 years. It was an absolute bloody nightmare for 11 years. And some of these deals took so long to do simply because the big companies, the potential, your potential sponsors, they're often very risk averse. And they find it very difficult to, um, to actually join something like Bloodhound. There's one famous one, which was a car company, which took six years to get the deal. We got it in the end, but uh, six years was an awful long time to keep fighting. Yeah. I, I guess it's the old eternal problem of a quick return on investment. Well, yes, that's very important. Um, but the point about it is that the publicity is so valuable that um, this enables you to get your quick return from your, your conventional investments. And the project, once it's successful, its publicity will go on for, oh, 20 years, easy. And so, you know, even today, huge numbers of people go to the Coventry Museum to see Thrust 2 and Thrust SSC. It's still delivering for its, for its sponsors, even though many of the sponsors are long gone. gone so yeah, we've outlasted them. Um, very personal question, Richard. When you broke the land speed record, was the achievement as good as you thought it would be? Well, we didn't do it for achievement, Steve. That's the important thing. Well, certainly I didn't do it for achievement. I mean, obviously we, we set out to, to, to break the world land speed record and to take it. But the most boring thing on God's earth is actually holding it. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's really very sad because as soon as you've actually done it, um, the whole project is over. It's really yeah. as simple as that. Everybody's got to go home and find another job. And the, the whole sort of teamwork, the terrific teamwork ethic, etc., that all, that all is, is lost. But I try to keep everybody going, and we all meet up from time to time. So really, it turns into one big family. Yes, it does. But you see, it's different. Uh, the... Interesting thing about this was I used to teach management for the American Management Association, which was a sort of a large American blue chip organization teaching management skills. Uh, I reckon it was a load of rubbish and all they were doing was producing large, very large hierarchies. Um, and, um, and they also, the American Management Association also had a very good library. So I went and got hold of as many books as I could. And I started reading the books of Abraham Maslow and I suddenly realized this was the genius who, um, who, who could help us. So we run flat organizations. That means that when people join the organization, they get their responsibilities and they also get the authority that goes with it. This is most unusual. So in theory, of course, they could quite easily take a decision and wreck the entire project, but they don't because everybody's got to communicate heavily between each other. And what happens is that for the first time, probably in most people's lives, they're actually being trusted. 
and they love this kind of relationship. Uh, Maslow defined it eventually as being, uh, as being in his hierarchy of needs, the famous pyramid, uh, right at the top, which is self-actualization, which is finding out who you are and what you really could do given the chance. So we have to give them the chance. And this is absolutely amazing. The, in, the ideas, the, the innovations, the concepts, oh, it, it's, it's absolutely terrific. And the motivation is just unbelievable. And for instance, during the Thrust SSC project, I had to stop it on Sundays because people were just working all day and all night. And, uh, you know, they were going to be very seriously ill soon. So we had, we had an enforced day off on Sundays. Otherwise, we were just at it. <laughs> so 12, 13 hours a day, all of us. So you, it, did, you did instill a great sense of achievement for everyone, no matter what they did. Yes, that's absolutely it. And uh, the whole idea is that the, uh, um, the project is actually the property of the team. Now, the difficulty is, of course, is team members come and team members go. So it's really the property of the team that finally achieves the objective. And uh, this is absolutely extraordinary. So, for instance, uh, you may know that there is a big movie being, um, uh, being put together now around the Thrust SSC supersonic record. And that movie is, is owned by the Thrust SSC team members. Um, while we're on the subject of Bloodhound, the latest Dan Speed record project, it looks, unfortunately, it's fallen on hard times. Do you think it'll ever be able to achieve its goals? Oh, God, I hope so. I mean, I really, really hope so. I mean, um, we put, I put 55,000 man hours of my life into that over 11 years. So in other words, you're doing about 5,000 hours per annum. So you're working twice as many hours as a, as a normal human being uh, just to drive the damn thing through. We got huge success with the education. We were moving 129,000 kids a year. They were studying it. This was a huge breakthrough in educational practice, um, way outside anything that the, the, you know, the, the government was doing. And um, we finally got ourselves to a position where we could do it. Yeah. And um, basically, we got uh, this uh, uh, un fantastic sponsorship from uh, the Geely Car Company in China. Mm. I was just so impressed with these guys and uh, my friend Lee Shufu, who decided he, he was going to back it. And, um, and then, of course, we were let down by the government. The government gave us an offer, which was given to us by um, uh, Joe Johnson. So that's Boris Johnson's brother, who was then uh, Minister for Transport. Yeah. Uh, and there it is. We, we've all got the letter there. And as soon as I got that letter, I roared with laughter because we could meet every single one of their requirements immediately. So uh, we then had a meeting with the, the BEIS, B-E-I-S people. And, um, and basically, it was a very odd meeting because normally when uh, there's a great success, both sides get very excited because, um, you know, uh, a high, uh, uh, the bar has been set very, very high and the, the team has achieved it. And, you know, everybody gets very excited because they can see the future. But this didn't happen. And we all came away from this meeting saying there's something very odd going on here, but, uh, you know, um, are they actually going to pay up? And it became quite clear that they weren't going to pay up. They weren't going to have any further meetings. Mm. And that was their way of getting out of it. So all you can deduce from this is that we were set up with something. They wanted us out of the way. They set the bar very high. The team achieved it, and they didn't know what the hell to do. What to do with it. 
And then uh, it took a further 18 months before the Secretary of State understood what had happened and reversed the entire process, so enabling us to, to claim. But unfortunately, of course, Britain was deep into uh, the, the Brexit problems. There was no spare cash for anybody and anything at yeah. that time, and we couldn't get any further. So I had to put it into administration in order to protect the team, uh, keep the car and its parts together, in the hope that uh, somebody would come forward and able to take it through to the next stage. Richard, did the um, educational aspect of it surprise you? Yes, it did. Um, I'd always known that there was a there was, there was a real potential here because um, uh, when we did Thrust Two and when we did Thrust SSC, the number of people who came forward. Remember, in each case, we had a large supporters club, generally of about five or six thousand people. And uh, the number of people who came forward to say, my son has just become an engineer because of what you've done, uh, it became quite clear that uh, it has enormous power and enormous capability. Uh, yeah, and um, uh, the greatest moment for, for me certainly was when we ran the car at Newquay in 2017. Uh, we had three days where we were going to demonstrate the car that October. And one of the days, the last day, was the education day. And we had 3,000 kids wow. on site uh, at Newquay Airport there, um, uh, you know, for our day. And it was absolutely astonishing. They were absolutely so committed to it. Um, they, they knew the names of all the engineers, so they got stuck in asking the engineers questions, etc. When we ran the car, they were dancing up and down. They'd never seen anything like it. And then I realized what was actually happening because these kids are the product of the screens. They don't get anything that's real. And uh, there's nothing more real than a landspeed rebel car herring down the track at over 200 miles an hour in full afterburner and shaking the ground and everything around it. So, um, yeah, you could see that it really, really worked. Mm. And something the uh, part of the uh, educational system had never managed to do, I guess. No, they hadn't. They, they really hadn't cottoned on to all this. And uh, the problem, of course, is it's, you're back to the, um, the terrible hierarchical um, systems we have in this country, and again with education, where, you know, every, everybody's sort of focused on meeting objectives and meeting targets. And the kids are not getting that opportunity to actually discover things for themselves. And this is what these projects are about. I think that could be another discussion in its own right, Richard. <laughs> uh, we can go on all night, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> um, given the present circumstances, you rightly said we're rattling towards a recession and an actual Brexit. Um, do you think there's still an appetite to break the land speed record? I would hope so. I really do. The thing about this is that um, it is about giving the country an identity. I mean, this is what Donald Campbell did way back in the 50s and the 60s. I mean, he did very, very well with his water speed record and his land speed record, and both in one year, which was an extraordinary achievement. Um, I think these things are incredibly important. And, you know, and uh, you look at, for instance, uh, Britain's sort of history when immediately after World War II, uh, basically the Americans ran away with all the technology um, for the nuclear bomb. So Britain went out and did its own nuclear bomb. And so yeah. suddenly we were at the main table again. Yeah. And that was a huge achievement. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, nobody likes nuclear bombs, but I mean, in terms of an achievement, it was astonishing. 
And then, of course, Concord. Now, I'd be very lucky because I hold the record for the fastest triple crossing of the Atlantic. That's just uh, sitting in a seat in Concord at uh, but, uh, an average speed of about 900 miles an hour. But ap what an incredible product. And there's been nothing like it since. And if you look at Boeing and you look at Airbus, you find there's no new innovation coming. They don't know where they're going. Uh, it's very, it's fascinating. So well, this country's really got to pick up the mantle of, now and, and get going. Yeah, I mean, they're also in the case of just about stopping production of a lot of these aircraft, so uh, with nothing new on the table. Uh, just That's... while we're on the subject of the record, there's still the electric record to be broken. Um, it's weighed in there. Would you have a go at that? No, not really interested, uh, because basically we're talking about a record of, I suppose at best, something of the order of about 400, or I don't know what the electric record actually is, 400 mm. or so miles an hour. Um, there's a big question as to whether the, um, the electric car is the solution to, um, to our problems. Um, I'm working on a program which is diametrically opposed to electric cars. And we're beginning to realize that um, there just isn't the resource, there isn't the infrastructure to support 30, 30 million electric cars. Mm. So it ain't going to happen. It'll be, it'll be around for the, the lucky and wealthy few, but um, we need something else. And uh, we have actually got something else, which is going to be very interesting. Right. Is that a... So is that something you can talk about or is that no it doesn't belong to me and okay. uh, you know i'm very fortunate to be invited to join the team um the interesting thing about this is though that with the electric record is that we looked at this at one stage when we uh, just completed diesel max and ron and i sat down and we talked about it and said well you know uh, would it be possible to build another diesel max but this time powered by an electric motor and when Ron looked at the, the battery technology and the battery weight, we then realized the car would be so heavy that um, it simply would never get the performance. Of course, batteries are changing fast. Technology is moving on fast. And uh, uh, it may be possible to do that now, but really it's not very fast. And uh, the ultimate world land speed record has got to be the one to follow. Absolutely. I'm, um, I'm glad you mentioned Ron Ayres there. He was our guest. I think about uh, a year ago. Oh, good. And I have to say, what a fascinating evening and what a gentleman that man is. We could never have done any of this without Ron. I mean, uh, the interesting thing about this was that uh, it was Ron who held the whole project together because if you can imagine, there we are, building a car to break the sound barrier. Everybody's against us everywhere. You've got, uh, you know, all the scientists saying this is an expensive way to kill somebody. Can't be done, won't happen. And Ron was the solid man in the team who was simply saying, yeah, it's going to be all right. Just keep going. And Ron is the, one of the, those very, very few people who can take an intensely complex situation and describe it very, very simply. Mm. I mean, uh, so frankly, um, without Ron, we certainly couldn't have broken the sound barrier, and without Ron, we certainly couldn't have done Bloodhound. Fantastic man. Um, I said at the beginning how much I enjoyed the book, but there are two standout chapters for me, Richard, um, and they're the final two. Um, chapter 11, you praise the work of the early designers and engineers, especially Reed Roughton. Yeah. And, you know, what he created with very little technology at his disposal. And yet the man was a genius. 
Reed Rolton was an absolute genius. And of course, uh, when the book, the big book came out, um, I was very privileged to get a copy of that. And I, I, I just read it from end to end, almost continuously. The extraordinary thing about this amazing man was that um, his breadth of engineering experience was so great. I mean, not only cars, Brooklands, um, uh, but also airplanes, airplane engines, um, uh, ships. It was absolutely incredible. So he could bring this huge breadth of experience together and focus it into, um, in, in this case, a water speed record boat. Mm. Mm. And it was just really bad luck that uh, things didn't quite work out for uh, Crusader and John Cobb. And um, it had a structural failure, which killed Cobb, which is a real shame. Mm. Mm. Your final chapter um, entitled What We've Learned, um, I think gave me a true insight to the real Richard Noble. Help. <laughs> <laughs> There's some pretty meaningful, I mean, we won't go into detail because we want people to read the book, but that final yeah. chapter, I have to say, I read it a couple of times or more just to absorb what we were trying to say. Was that intentional or did that just come through a closure of the book? Well, obviously, we got to um, summarise the book. You couldn't just leave it in midair, particularly after um, uh, after Bloodhound. And uh, and I felt it was very, very important to get the message across, because um, really, the, the team members in our teams um, have been in a unique position in our country. Uh, most people work in hierarchical organisations, and they do what they're told. Um, we don't work that, that way, and consequently, we have to be very efficient and very fast, and we have to outmarket and outwork everybody. So we always have big problems with our sponsors because we do things quickly and efficiently, and we get good results, whereas they're sort of generally struggling around. It is very interesting that um, we've had quite a lot of work, we've had quite a lot of support from the military, particularly from the uh, Royal Air Force. Yeah. And also, of course, from the army, um, where we worked extensively on, on Bloodhound. And the Royal Air Force, of course, made our tail for Bloodhound, which was terrific. Now, um, at one stage, and I can't remember the date of this, sadly, but um, I found myself in uh, uh, the MOD's main office in Whitehall, lecturing on how we work to very, very senior RAF personnel. Uh, because, obviously, they were struggling with their budgets. And basically, if they could adopt a, uh, a system like ours, they'd save an enormous amount of money because they'd be very quick, they'd be very efficient, they'd get the right answer more often, and um, they could um, uh, they could achieve much more with the limited money funds that they're given. And this seems to have worked, apparently, seems to have worked through the system. And they tried a flat organization, um, but it failed. And the, the message that came back to me, I, I, it was very interesting. They simply said, look, um, the, uh, the employees in the Royal Air Force belong to a hierarchical structure. They're told what to do, and they go out and do what they're told. They don't, they're not, this is not a situation where they're allowed to think for themselves or also to innovate themselves. So when they, the RAF guys tried to, tried to put this thing together, uh, basically, the employees just said, this is not for us. You know, we don't have the right culture for this. It's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And that guy, Abraham Maslow, way back in 1943, was an absolute genius. 
You uh, open up at the beginning of chapter 12 and to say, to understand risk, we have to live with it, encourage yeah. it and accept its consequences every day. Absolutely right. And the thing about these projects is that um, we have to live with risk. Um, and we have to accept risk because risk is essential to getting innovation and getting uh, extraordinary results. And certainly with the land speed record cars, we've had extraordinary results and we might get some with the aviation ones in due course. But um, it, uh, this is actually what it's about. And you've got to take risk. Now, the interesting thing is that if you spend your life taking risk, then you have a sort of innate understanding of risk and you know what you can do as a team and what you can't do as a team. So the number of times, you know, I've been presenting to main boards and so on, and you say, well, this is what you guys can do, da-da-da, you can't, and they look at you blankly and say, we couldn't do that. <laughs> and why? Well, because they've never taken a risk in their lives, and they can't, therefore, um, quantify the risk, and they haven't got the confidence behind to drive it forward. So you have to live with it. And um, the, the fascinating thing about the record attempts, which are, of course, about innovation, you're piling risk upon risk upon risk upon risk. For instance, with thrust SSC, there you are. You're going to build a car that's going to break the sound barrier. You're going to use two uh, Rolls-Royce Spey engines. You're going to have 100,000 horsepower there. Nobody's ever done a car like that. And uh, Glenn Barsha, who helped us um, with designing the... Um, uh, the running gear on this decided that it was going to be rear wheel steer. Nobody ever built a rear wheel yeah. steer car. And then it had active rides, and the active ride varied the instance of the car according to the Mach number. I mean, this thing was just absolutely fantastic. And we were piling risk upon risk upon risk. But because we knew what we were doing, and because we got people like Andy and Ron. Yeah. Uh, you know, who are quite happy with what was going on because they, they, um, they had evaluated it for themselves. Basically, the project succeeded. But if, you, if we started off today and said, we're going to build a land speed ruckle car with 100,000 horsepower, twin jet engines, an active ride, and railroad steer, people would laugh at us. Yeah, yeah. And again, you, the thing about Bloodhound, I mean, Bloodhound is brilliant. Bloodhound is absolutely brilliant. And I just wish that, uh, you know, the government could understand the huge potential of this thing. Mm, and stepped up to the plate. And stepped up to it, yeah. Yeah. Richard, one final question from me. Uh, if you'd not caught the bug for speed, what do you think you'd have finished up doing or being? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it would be selling paint or scaffolding. <laughs> But I love a challenge, and it is the whole thing is, of course, about humor and people. Yeah. It's about putting these deals together, making it an enjoyable experience for everybody, and somehow getting the thing through to success at the end. Fantastic. Richard, thank you for your time today, and we look forward to welcoming you back to Brooklands once again. Good luck with the book, and good luck with whatever comes out of that book. We wish you well. Thank you. thank you so much, Steve, and thank you so much for taking the trouble, reading it all, and really understanding it. I really appreciate that. Thank it's you. It's been a pleasure.